doing a pretty thoughtful piece this week about how Memorial Day is the most expensive holiday of all the holidays. The reason why it's so expensive that every meal, every house, every step, every breath, all purchased by those who didn't come home. I'm of the age that most of my uncles, uh, my grandfather fought in World War II, most of my uncles fought in Vietnam when uh, people were saying in 2020, you know, it's really a bummer the seniors didn't get a graduation and all that. You know, in 1960s, a lot of the seniors got a senior trip to Vietnam, and many of them didn't come back. In light of that, of course, I think we can be very grateful. And, and I'm not saying that we're not, but it's, I think it's important to remember this, this holiday among, as opposed to other ones, uh, is about those who didn't come home. So we're grateful for that, and it's part of the goodness of God to allow us to have this nation, uh, certainly on the backs and on the blood of those who have, have sacrificed. It's going to be with you today, and maybe you can take some time tomorrow and remind your children of uh, the holiday and encourage them to be grateful and thankful, not buy into the nonsense that's being said today in the culture, of the, uh, the woke culture. So uh, that's my encouragement to you. If you would, if you have little ones and you want them to be in Sunday school through grade six, you can be uh, dismissed in this time. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians 11.22. And we're going to read there. Benjamin Franklin, in his autobiography, noted, There is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it's still alive. And he said, even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. That's right, isn't it? Frankly, boasting and humility are generally mutually exclusive, incompatible, if not, uh, in fact, opposites. But the last time we were together, we began to look at this section of our letter where Paul has to deal with having to boast. And so I want to pick up in our reading in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty, back up to verse 20 as opposed to 22. Let's read together. For verse 20, you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. Verse 21, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. Paul speaking of false teachers and how they abuse the church. And in comparison himself to say, you know, you accepted that. We're weak by comparison in comparison to what they did to you. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I'm just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So he's equal to them in all of his lineage and all of his education and all of his priorities. And then he says in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often danger of death. Verse 24. Five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Verse 26. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers. Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Verse 27, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, off without food, in cold and exposure. Verse 28, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Verse 29, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? 
Verse 30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Verse 31, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hand. I stop right there. In 1 Corinthians 10, 32, Paul said of his ministry, he said, I give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but to the profit of many, so that they may be saved. In this chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And we saw last time, as we work our way verse by verse and chapter by chapter and comparing Scripture with Scripture, last time we used Philippians 2.3, Paul modeled Christ's humility. He said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then he drew their attention to the model of humility, which is Jesus himself in verse 5. He said, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus could have boasted that he was equal with God, could have boasted of his role in creation and all of that, but what, he, what did he do? He didn't, and instead made himself the form of a servant. So Jesus is perfectly humble, and Christ was the pattern that Paul followed. And this whole idea of boasting in any context was repulsive to him. He saw it as foolish. He saw it as fleshly. But we saw the tension last time there in our passage. He begins to boast, and we saw that he doesn't really start until you get to verse 22. He has so many disclaimers, and, and it's so distasteful to him that he wants to talk about other things because he doesn't want to be misunderstood. But the Apostle Paul does a marvelous job here of humble boasting because some in the church have been captured by false teachers. That's who he's really addressing this to from chapter 10 on. And they've boasted of their so-called accomplishments and of their apostleship. And they have used that supposed superiority, because all those are in parentheses, to lead the church astray with false doctrine. So he boasts, then, defending his own superiority to the false teachers and the false apostles. And they had come to Corinth, of course, and they were disguising themselves, verse 15 says, as servants of righteousness. And Paul had warned them in advance and said he was going to point out their falseness. And in 2 Corinthians eleven twelve, he says, But what I am doing I'll continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. In other words, Paul says, listen, they're boasting about a lot of stuff, but I'm going to just keep on doing what I've been doing. And as I continue to do that, that by itself will reveal their... their um, inability and their falseness. I tell you what I do. I go from city to city and I establish churches and I establish elders in those churches and, and teach them and disciple them. And when I do that, that's going to prove the other f folks are false. And then he says in verse 10, he says, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. In other words, I'm not just going to talk about what I've done here and how what I've done among you as you've been my letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. And uh, you are our letter of introduction, all those kinds of things that he talked about in the establishment of the church. He says, there's more things that I'm going to talk about besides just this. And that's really what our passage is about today. We're going to get into that. And I'm going to point out to you, it's going to prove the legitimacy of my ministry and the illegitimacy of those who are false. So you should listen to what I'm going to tell you. So boasting of his superiority, uh, we begin to see last time that he maintains his humility at the same time. And that's a tough thing to do. 
a great challenge. And Paul feels this tension all the time, being forced to defend himself, forced to show himself superior, and, of course, this whole time not to compromise his humility. Because, you know, he told the church, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. And so he set up his life this way. And if he sets up his life this way, then that's a pretty narrow place for him to walk. He can't go right or left. Otherwise, he undermines the integrity. And, and any time a pastor has to do this, defend himself, the people who accuse him of something, and he has to use his experience and, and the things that he's done in the past and, and his education or whatever it is to, uh, to defend himself, that's undesirable to attempt it. Paul calls it foolishness. He wants to avoid it, but he's finally forced into it. And, and what we begin to see last time, then, what happens when we read this, we, uh, when we're reading, what turns out to be, then, as we read this whole thing of Paul talking about himself, it, it ends up being one of the most wonderful and insightful se- sections of Scripture as it relates to the Apostle Paul. And, and maybe the richest example of humility anywhere in the New Testament, apart from Jesus himself, who we know had to endure the questioning and the, uh, and the uh, insulting and the lecturing and, and patronizing of the Pharisees when he himself is the Word made flesh. He stands there and lets them berate him, and he doesn't say anything uh, or just answers them back, and we see that humility just everywhere. But Paul, of course, here is, I think, a a great example of that. And so it helps us to understand, I think, what still goes on in the modern church. Now, if if you were in the situation, this is what I think about this week, if you're in the situation that Paul is in with similar qualifications and you were asked to do this, you had to defend yourself uh, as a true apostle of Jesus, and you... Uh, of course, you can't be an apostle, neither can I. But if you were in this position back here and, and you want to show them you were superior to the false apostles who were misleading the church and, or you wanted somebody to write a bio for you that was to be impressive when they read it and you could walk up and everybody would be looking forward to what you had to say, you might say something like this. If you were the Apostle Paul or like the Apostle Paul, you would probably start with your broad background, right? And um, Paul was born in the Gentile world. He knew his way around Greek and Roman culture, uh, very cosmopolitan, so people might want to mention that. And then, uh, of course, he's a Roman citizen, and not everyone was, so he had all the rights and privileges that go with that, and he might want somebody to mention that too. You may as well. And um, he may say, you know, I've been trained uh, here in Jerusalem. I know my culture very well. I've been privileged to sit at the feet of Gamaliel, the most outstanding and excellent teacher of this age. He's my trainer, so I have an excellent education. And so you might want to mention that I have an excellent education. And then I have traveled extensively around this area, and uh, I'm able to drop names anytime. So I can drop names that you'll know. I know city leaders. I know priests. I know heads of synagogues. I know governors. And, uh, you know, they introduced me. They wrote letters for me. They, they, uh, and I had their permission. They trusted me to extradite people. And you may have heard of that, and you might want to mark that in my bio. And if you were Paul and you wanted to show them that you were superior to false apostles and misleading the church, you could have said, do you know how many churches I've planted? They certainly could draw attention to that, right? And, um, and how many things I've published? And, and you've read some of them. So, you know, and they've been passed around to other churches, so make sure, you know, you, you mention that. I instruct thousands of people on how to walk with the Lord and be spiritually controlled. And did you hear what Luke said about me? You know, in Acts chapter 19, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Luke said that about me. You might want to include that. And so handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. You know, I cast out demons. I don't even have to be there, you know. Benny Hinn should have listened to that. He's the, Paul is the only one who could do that. And it really is embarrassing to some of these other guys. You know, there were some other guys, uh, uh, sons of a chief priest, seven guys, actually. You may have heard this story, and, and the chief priest was named Sceva, and they went out, and they said, you know, we're going to cast you out by, by Paul and by, 
and, and by Jesus, and, and, the, and the demon said to them, you know, I know Paul, and I know Jesus, but I don't know you, and then they just they got the rear ends handed to them. And so you might, have, you might have known that, and that would be good to mention. And then, you know, and you can include this in my bio if you want, you know, then Luke said, this became known to all. Everybody knew about it, Jews and Greeks, everybody who lived in Ephesus, and they all fell into fear about the name of the Lord Jesus, and it was being magnified because of what I did. And many of, also of those who believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. I mean, this is just widespread revival going on here. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began turning, uh, burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them, and they found it at 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So you might want to mention, Paul might have said, and maybe you, my preaching is very effective and very convincing, obviously. So Paul could have given credentials like that. And here's the marvelous thing about it. They were all true. Unlike you and I when we brag and we kind of mix in some stuff that we wish was true and then stuff that's actually true and makes us look good. Paul could have said all of that and he didn't embellish any of that. That's precisely his credentials. But he doesn't say any of that, does he? It seems like that's what he should say, but he doesn't say a single thing. In verse 23, here's what he says. Look there, if you would. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. What's he say? You know, first of all, he can't get over the fact that he has to actually call them or even refer to these false apostles as servants of Christ, right? Because they're not. And he's like, I'm insane to even say that. But what's the very first thing Paul says? You know, I, I really serve Christ, right? That's the very first thing he says. He doesn't say any of these other things. His main thing was, I serve Christ. And then he says, I, I worked harder in far more labors. I've spent more time in jail, so far more imprisonments. I can't even remember how many times I've been attacked, so beaten time without number. And, and lots of people want to kill me. And so this beating thing, too, we're going to see. He's got some numbers on some of them. So, you know, those ones have already been counted, and there's many more on top of that. So, and, and he could have said all those other things. He could have someone put his bio together. It was fantastic. But, but what does he say? Look at verse 24. Five times I have received... From the Jews, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. So those are already numbered. So he's beaten time without number, much more than that. Once I was stoned three times, shipwrecked. Not in a day I've spent in the deep. Frequent journeys, dangers from rivers. And we read all of that. And so we asked last time, what's wrong with the life Paul's living? I mean, how is this evidence of his superiority and his truthfulness, his believability, his legitimate apostleship? It really sounds like he needs to reevaluate his life a little bit. Maybe tone down the whole, all the rhetoric, right? Not so much talking about sin, not so much talking about hell, not so much talking about, you know, making people uncomfortable and, and instead toning all that down, make it, you feel good when you come to church and everything's good and you're going to walk out and things would be better. You know, if, I said last time, if anybody needed to read The Best Life Now by Joel Olstein, it was Apostle Paul. He obviously had missed that seeker-sensitive kinds of emphasis, see, which had made everybody feel good. But that's not the issue, is it? I mean... And I think it will help. There's a lot of stuff here, and as I told you before, these passages are hard to put in a cohesive outline because they, they kind of list off Paul's suffering, and we could go through all those, and we'll trace some of them down. But I think the thing that will help us understand why he could have said the things we said earlier, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but they would have all been true. But what he did say, I think, is it's good to look at Matthew chapter 10. Will you do that? And I think right away, as we start going through here, you're going to see immediately why the Apostle Paul went the route that he went. Matthew chapter 10, you'll just need to follow along in your copy of God's Word. I'll give you some slides, but most of them will be right there before you. 
And we're going to get a sense of this thing that Paul is pointing to as opposed to how everyone else might have done it after summing up Paul's ministry. Verse 1, look there, starts out this way. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So Jesus is calling his disciples together, and he's getting ready to send them out to do the work that they're going to do. And he gives them power, and he gives them authority over demons and, uh, to cast them out. And he gives them sign gifts to heal every sign, kind of disease, every kind of sickness. And he tells them who they are and, and, and tells us who they are. And so we can, you can read that if you want that list. And then he gives some final instructions on their purpose and their mission. Look at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go, he says, in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's their target, okay? Uh, there's their, that's their marketing target, if you want to use today's lingo. Just to the Jews. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. So, what are they supposed to do? Preach the kingdom, number one. Um, show forth sign gifts to verify the message and the messenger. And we talked about that before. In the first century, because everything was new, the Lord allowed them to have sign gifts, miracles that they could do to verify the message, verify the messenger. It doesn't extend into today. because We don't need that anymore. We have the full, complete word of God, and we have verification of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. But here we saw that they had this ability. Okay, I've given you all that background. And then don't charge people for the miracles. Okay? That's not cool. If you do a miracle, don't make somebody pay for it. And then he says in verse 9, he says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag with your, for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the workers worthy of his support. And Jesus is very, uh, very um, complete in his instruction here because you can imagine as they're thinking, okay, we're going out. How are we going to live? I mean, we're not going to fish. You know, we're not going to collect taxes. We don't have any way of bringing money in. We're going to go out, though, and, and, and the Lord's going to do this with us. What's going to happen? How, how will we get by? He just says, listen. You don't have to save up your money. As you minister, those who minister to you are going to take care of you. And then he gives them some logistical instructions. Look at verse 11. In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you, verse 12, enter the house, give it, to, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Verse 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for that city. Jesus says, you're going to know where you're going to stay. Just start asking a few questions about who's worthy. And then, you know, someone who knows and fears God maybe perhaps is the one that gets, you get pointed to. And stay there initially until you find out if that's the case. If that's not the case, you've got to get out of there because you don't want your testimony sullied by whatever this person does. And when you leave, you take your blessing with you. And that must have been a significant uh, deficit for them as well as the blessing of having and hosting the apostle in the house. And so there's some things going on there. And then Jesus gives them some warnings. Uh, so it was a little bit of a warning. Verse 15, wasn't it? Truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they reject you. You know, the, the apostles going out, they've got the message. They think, hey, everybody's going to love this. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to give this message. Tons of people are going to come to faith. It's just going to be really, really successful ministry. And it is. But some will reject. And now Jesus goes on and he says, look at verse 16. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Whoa. Tough environment, right off the bat. Hostile, dangerous. So 
Jesus is right up front. I'm just going to drop you in there like a sheep in the middle of a wolf pack. That's just great, isn't it? That's not a comfortable place for a sheep to be. You go out and minister. That's the analogy. And as a footnote, wolves were used to describe false teachers in Matthew 7.15 and Luke 10.3. Certainly in Acts chapter 20, we looked at that not too long ago. Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus and some other surrounding churches. Some elders are there. They're, they're very weepy because Paul's leaving. They know he's not going to see him again. Uh, every city he goes to, they say he's going to be in bonds and chains and everything. And Paul doesn't mind. He doesn't hold his life as dear to himself. And he says, I know that after my departure, here it is, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So what's he talking about? False teachers. Right away in the first century, people who would teach contrary to what was sound doctrine. It's just the same now. It's no different. People are all over the place doing this same thing. And from among your own selves, so even elders are going to come in and uh, will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples away after them. So we know exactly what he's talking about, don't we? Wolves are false teachers. They're going to try to tear up the church in general and believers in specific. And Peter in, indicates mo- much of the same thing in P- 1 Peter chapter 5. As he talks to the church, he says, Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the implication is in their sin. They're going to devour them in their sin. And, and we understand this because... Um, We just read just a few verses before that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, and his workers do the same thing. And so he's at work in the church. We understand that's the case. So Peter just says, listen, be prepared, because it's not a foregone conclusion that he's he's going to devour you in your sin, because you'll be sober of spirit and be on the alert. And resist him, it says in verse 9, firm in your faith, knowing that, mark this, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Everybody's going through the same type of thing. You're all sheep in the middle of wolves, and it's always going to be difficult. Showed a shared experience of a hostile environment. And Satan is the one who has instructed the false teachers on how to look the part of the righteous teacher to impersonate an apostle, as we saw. Now back to uh, Matthew 10, verse 16. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and then this simile, to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, people read that, and they say, what, what does that mean exactly? You, maybe you've read that, and you're like, what, what, what's it, you know, because nobody minds their character being compared to a dove, okay, unless you're a football player. You don't want to be a dove and a football player. But, but some people recoil at the image of a serpent, no matter what the context is. I don't want it to be compared to a snake. It's an insult, and they can see a snake in a good light, even if Jesus is using it as a teaching tool, okay? So, but the words, a world is a hostile place for believers. Jesus is really clear about that reality. In fact, the world then, as it is now, was hostile to believers. Not, beloved, incidentally hostile, intentionally hostile. Okay? It's not just because you're doing something and, you know, you run crosswise with somebody once in a while. This is intentional hostility. And wolves are very intentional about the harm they inflict on sheep. And, and in that environment, beloved, the question becomes, how can we advance the kingdom of God effectively without automatically becoming a casualty? Right? I mean, if he's going to plop him down a sheep in the middle of wolves, how do you last? I mean, you're going to be like, you're going to measure your life in minutes. So he says this. He said, I mean, and you can imagine, you're going to uh, the 1040 window. You're, you're in the middle of, you know, even today's missionaries in the middle of Muslim territory. I mean, how long are you going to last? You walk out on the, uh, a, a city in Iran and start preaching the gospel. You're going to measure your life in minutes. Unless, unless you understand what Jesus got, just got through saying. And Jesus taught his followers that to be Christ-like in a godless world, they have to combine the wisdom of the serpent and the harmlessness of the dove. So you've got to go about it in a way that's going to give you some longevity. And that's not wrong. 
And we see that in Paul, don't we? And we see it in the apostles, too. They're wise enough to, to escape, right? They're wise enough to know what to say to certain people to draw attention away from uh, the big uproar, right? So they understand that. The, the serpent was subtle or crafty or shrewd, certainly in Genesis 3.1. We're not transferring Satan to the, the demon in the analogy. Okay? I think that's the, the, part, the problem people have with it. They're transferring you know, Satan being uh, inhabiting the snake. It's not that. It's just how we look at the snake. Okay? And so the dove is harmless and innocent, and we see that. And, and, um, so Jesus' point is this for his apostles. Uh, be wise and harmless. And those two traits combined will help you establish the church in the world. When you're walking in this dangerous world, uh, you'll be able to cope successfully with the wolves and with a lion if you're wise and innocent. And then Jesus says, look at Matthew 10 again, verse 17. But beware of men, so those are the wolves, we know that right away, okay? For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues, verse 18, and you will be even brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, uh, those are the words that refer to judgment, they hand you over for judgment, do not worry about how or what you're to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you're to say, for it is not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now, let's pause right there. So Jesus is talking here about his apostles, of which Paul was to be one. And, and Paul then is caught up in that prophecy, so the scourging in the courts and the tribunal, hostile environment, dangerous situations, and also the pledge, which is, it will be given to you in that hour what you're to say, for you're not to, uh, it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And then this, in other words, I'll be with, there with you and put the words in your mouth, see? This is the promise of inspiration for those who are apostles. Now, I can see, I think you can see where we're going with this. So, Paul was the living fulfillment of those things, was he not? He was like the sheep in the midst of wolves, for sure. Everywhere he went, they tried to kill him. It didn't even take very long after his salvation. We'll see that in just a minute. I mean, he's only in the Damascus for a couple of days, and automatically the Jews want to kill him. He comes to faith. He begins to preach Jesus was the Christ, and right away they want to do away with him. I mean, it's just, you just measure it in days for Paul. And everywhere they try to devour him. Everywhere they turn him over the courts, right? Don't we see him in court, court after court after court in the book of Acts having to defend himself? having to answer some magistrate or some governor or some ruler. Later on in the book of Acts, he has to, it's Agrippa or Festus or Felix or, or, or whoever it is, right? Always some tribunal that he has to come to. Eventually, he's at Rome. He's put in prison there. Later on, he's back in Rome, prison, in prison again. He has to make another defense. Nobody's there with him that time, he told Timothy. And, and every time he wrote, he wrote with power. The Lord spoke through him to bring about purposes. Every time he taught in the synagogues, he taught with power. The Lord worked through him and brought about uh, tremendous change. And Paul was shrewd too, right? He knew how to manage false teachers and contentious people and, and do church discipline. And he knew he was wise uh, and cautious with wicked men. He understood how to redirect so he could escape if it was possible. And um, so all of that, see, it, and, and the apostles, the other apostles were too. Our passage in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned. And each of those scourgings, those 39 lashes, would have taken place in the synagogue. Five times, 39 lashes. Acts 15, 17, uh, 5, 17 tells us this happened to the other apostles too. And it uses the word flogged for lashes. So that's a prophecy that Jesus gave of what's going to happen to the apostles. And so you look at Paul's life. And, and if, if you want to ask whether he's an apostle, 
And you really need to ask and see if he fulfilled the prophecy, right? The verification of Paul's legitimacy begins with this suffering. Because that's precisely what Jesus said was going to happen. And this reality puts the false teachers on notice, doesn't it? It's, it's embarrassing. Because they're busy fleecing the church and taking money from the church and, and falsely uh, representing themselves to the church and claiming uh, authority over all these kinds of things. While Paul is experiencing exactly what Jesus said would be the characteristic of the life of an apostle. That's what's true of him. Look at Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is what? Not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. So just in case you're wondering, it shouldn't surprise you that this is what it's going to be because you know my life up until this point. It's enough for the disciple, verse 25, that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So if they persecuted me, then they're going to persecute you. I'm your teacher, and you're not going to be any different than I am. If I were your teacher, then they hated me, then they're going to hate you. If they called me names, they're going to call you names because you remind them of me. And that's how it always is, beloved, when you go out and witness. If you're, if you're an active witness, you know that people will personally attack you by names and, and denigrate you. And you should have experienced that because if you're regularly witnessing, you're going to bump into that kind of thing. People will laugh at that. They think that's ridiculous. Why should, we why should that surprise us? That's precisely what happened to Jesus, right? And when you present the gospel, that's exactly how it's going to be. You remind them of him. That's why they're rejecting you. A slave's going to be like his master. That's true, not only in terms of conducting yourself like they do, but you're going to be treated like they were too. That's how it's going to be. Same prophecy we see in John 15, 20. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Jesus said in John, if they persecuted me, they will also, and there's that word, persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So it's the other side too. The same types of people like you who kept my word, understood that it was truth, you'll find them as well and those who will disregard you and persecute you. John 16, 2, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming when everyone who kills you thinks he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they've not known the Father or me. You know, they... they they not only did it to the original 11, see, but they did it to the converts who confessed Jesus as well, see. And, and think about Paul. Paul. Paul is the perfect illustration of both sides of that prophecy. You know, they're going to make you outcast from the synagogue. They're going to, uh, They're going to think that if they turn you over to death, that they're doing God a favor. Didn't Paul do both of those? Paul was on both sides of that, wasn't he? He was one who was chasing down believers and hauling them into the synagogue to be punished and even killed. And then after being born again, he was on the other side. And they were hunting him down to pull him into the synagogue. So he, he was on both sides of John 16 too. So Paul's a perfect illustration of both sides. John 16:33, he says, uh, These things I've spoken to you that, so that you may have peace. You know what's going to come. Uh, but don't be confused. Don't think, oh, well, they, we must not be doing what God wants us to do because everything, everybody's against us, right? I mean, that's kind of like that backwards way you measure whether your ministry is effective. You, know, you think everybody in the church is going to love you, right? You think everybody that you're doing ministry to is going to think you're great. But didn't Jesus say in Luke chapter 6, woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way they spoke of your fathers of false prophets? You're always going to have trouble when you do ministry with certain sections of people. You know, so Jesus says, don't worry, you're still doing what I want you to do. Just because people reject you doesn't mean you're not doing what you're supposed to do. 
In the world, you're going to have trouble. But these things I've spoken to you that you'll have peace. You know, in Acts 5.41, the apostles were preaching about Jesus, and, and the leaders of the synagogue brought him in. Do you remember? They lectured him, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And, and then they went out, and they immediately went back to doing it again, right? Then they threw him in prison, and then uh, they escaped and went out, and they were doing it, and they couldn't find him. And then they're like, they hold him back in, and they're like, didn't we tell you not to do that? We have to be God rather than man. Remember this? And then Gamaliel steps in, and he says, hey, you know, don't be so hard on these guys. I mean, if, if they're not of God, it's just going to fade away. We won't have to worry about it. But if this is from the Lord, you're going to find yourself fighting against the Lord. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's good advice. And then they took him back and flogged him. Okay, so they didn't really listen to him. And what happened? I love this passage. It's, I've done a lesson on this, verse 41. They went on their way from the presence of the council, ticked off that nobody appreciated their ministry, and flogged them. Is that what it says? I've done so much work for the kingdom, how come I'm being embarrassed in front of everybody? What, what were they doing? Rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Why? Because they knew that that was what Jesus had indicated would be signs of a true apostle. You're going to be hauled into the synagogue, you're going to be flogged, right? People are thinking they're doing God a favor by killing you. You see, they rejoiced because they had difficulty. And I think that's an important thing to grasp a hold of. Now, we're not apostles, you, neither you or me. But I think that's an important principle to grasp. That the more you live your life for Christ, the more people oppose you. That's not a bad thing as long as you're doing that in gentleness, right? You don't want to be unkind. You're not trying to come across as a jerk. Right? Some, some people don't like you because you're not very nice, right? Or you're not a hard worker. Or what, I mean, There's lots of reasons why people will persecute you. They don't have anything to do with your testimony. You want to make sure that they're persecuting you because of your testimony, see? Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 that he bore on his body, what? The brand marks of Jesus. That doesn't sound very good. You know, so he comes into this Corinthian church and he says, you know, they're like, can we see your letter of introduction? We have ours. He's like, all right, let me whip off my shirt. You whip off yours. We'll compare scars. How about that? I wear the brand marks of Jesus on my body. That's embarrassing, right, for them. Last part of John 16, 33, in the world you're going to have tribulation. Take courage. I've overcome the world. You know, that's why Paul could say in tribulation, he said, count it all joy. Why? Because it was a mark, wasn't it? It was a mark that he was doing what he was supposed to do. You know, and just in case those fooled by the false teachers were thinking, you know, Paul's just being flogged and persecuted and hated because he's just so hard to get along with, and he just ticks everybody off. He's just not a very nice guy to be around. He's so abrasive. Nope. Acts chapter 9 ties it directly to the prophecy. Here it is. Acts 9 verse 13. The Lord speaks to Ananias in a vision, tells him to go and speak to Paul. Ananias is not very keen on that idea. And he says, Lord, you know, I've heard many things about this guy and how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And I'm one of those guys. I don't really want to go talk to him, if that's all right. What's the Lord say to him? Go. Go speak to Paul. Why? He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And then verse 16, mark it, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's the way it was for the apostles, wasn't it? And how long did it take? Not very long. Verse 22, Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to, here it is, do away with him. The first of a long line of those trying to do it. 
But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. And mark this language of this next verse. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall and lowered him in a large basket. Sounds remotely like what we just read in verse 32, doesn't it? That's precisely what he's talking about. And that's where it happened. He hasn't even been a believer just a couple of days. He wanted him dead right from the start. That's the way it always was, see? It's never really any different than that. And so it makes sense why Paul would say what he says. You know, he wasn't a guy who needed to evaluate his ministry and change a lot of things. And, and we'll end with this because we're out of time. But Acts chapter 20, verse 22, look at this. As he talks about himself, and this is on the heels of what we just looked at in Acts 20, he's getting ready to depart from the elders there in Ephesus. And he says, now behold, bound by the Spirit. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is telling me this is the direction I've got to go, and I'm going to go. Um, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city. People are coming up and saying, Paul, don't go. You're just going to have, uh, you're just going to have bonds, and you're going to have afflictions. Verse 24, but I do not consider my life on any account as dear to myself, so that I might finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. What was that? The apostolic ministry, the last one. See? And he understood that was, that was going to be the nature of his ministry. That was what the prophecy that Jesus said was. That's the way he lived his life. He didn't count his life dear to himself. He, he was more than willing to do this because he counted it as um, overwhelmingly valuable, apart from anything else that he'd ever done, that he was who he was, and he got to preach Christ. Uh, the principle he shared with Timothy as Paul recounted his life to his son in the faith, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that spreads it a little further, doesn't it? It's not just the apostles who are going to get it and first century disciples who, who came to faith under their ministry, but it just spreads it all the way out to the church age, doesn't it? So that includes you and me. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, beloved, you can kind of evaluate your life back through that whole statement, right? If, if nobody has a problem with you, if nobody seems to ha have any question about how you live your life and how you stand for the, uh, firmly in the faith and, and you give out the gospel, then you might have to reevaluate what your relationship with God really is. If you can live in the world incognito, if, if you're like a camouflaged Christian in the world, nobody recognizes you, that, that's problematic, isn't it? If all means all, then, and it does, see. But, of course, here with Timothy, it was more than that, wasn't it? It was a specific prophecy from Jesus for all those who would serve him in his first century apostolic ministry. That's what it's supposed to look like. So another reason why it just kind of debunks the whole modern apostleship. Because if it's a modern apostleship, it'd have to fall under the same guidelines, certainly of qualifications, which they're disqualified. But even apart from all of that, the life doesn't look like that at all. See. The first mark of his superiority then to the false teachers was his suffering. Just a constant matter of his life. I mean, 2 Corinthians 1, 4, affliction all around. And verse 5, suffering is abundant. Verse 6, afflicted, suffering, again, verse 7, sufferings, verse 8, afflicted, burdened excessively. Verse 9, sentence of death within ourselves, a great peril of death, um, always caring about in our body the dying of Jesus. In other words, for the cause of Christ, he knew that every day could be his last. People who live like that right now in other countries. Verse 12 says, death works in us. Why? Because I believe, therefore I spoke. In other words, as long as he spoke exactly what he believed and what the Lord had told him to speak, and he confronted an ungodly culture, he was on the brink of death every single day. 
chapter 6, verse 4, endurances and afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments, tumults, labor, sleeplessness, hunger. And we looked at that as marks of a faithful teacher, marks of a, certainly marks of the apostle. That was his life. Uh, later we're going to see he's going to mention insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties. It was just his way of life. I mean, you know, we might say, well, we can, we can suffer persecution, but don't let anybody insult me, right? It's all part and parcel. And, and, and that answers, I think, the why question. You know, we're going to break some of this down, of course, and we're going to look at some of the individual illustrations of the things that happened to Paul, but we're not going to take every single one. We'd be here uh, for a month. But I think it's important that it, these kinds of things show that he was the one the church should believe. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 10 would happen to his sent ones, and Paul was certainly one of their number. Because you cannot live a life, beloved, uncompromisingly confronting the kingdom of darkness with the truth and not have some scars to show for that. And those are your badges of authenticity, even now. And so we can see what a remarkable, humble man he was. He could have said so many things that perhaps we would have said didn't say any of those things. He just pointed and said, look, life of the apostle was my life. And that should be authenticity in us. All right? All right. At a time, let's bow. We're dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for just a great opportunity to be together as a church. It's, we don't take it for granted. We're so delighted to be uh, in one another's company and to share the life, uh, this journey that we're on with, with your son, Holy Spirit together with each other as we read your word we know that you're at work in it you are speaking to us individually it has one translation one understanding uh, some a number of applications and and lord you're doing that and we're so grateful continue to pray as we we think about our own life we think about um, all who live godly lives will be uh, suffer persecution as we look around have we offended anybody with what we said not intentionally not trying to be mean not trying to be unkind but because we spoke the truth and we, we, we know Christ and people know that we do, does that offend some that are around us? Because that's a good sign, even though we'd like them to come to faith. The fact that the ungodly are offended by our life and offended by what we say, that's a good sign. So, Father, continue to help us as we throw down these high towers and things raised up against the knowledge of your Son and by the truth of your word and by faithfulness in our life. Pray that uh, we'll be able to tell where we are is in respect to our relationship with you by how, how we bump into these kinds of things. Take us out uh, today, Father, as we go into a holiday for most. Help us to be grateful, thankful that uh, we live in a nation that provides easy access to free speech and easy access to uh, meeting together freely and proclamation of the gospel and help us to be about those things. Help us to be thankful for the lives which were sacrificed that we could still have them. We're grateful for that. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said.